All right, let's open up now to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to cover, recover a little bit of ground that Dave Lomas from Reality San Francisco covered for us last week. This has been the plan. I've told you all along that as we're moving through the book of Acts, we'll take time to do some deep dives on certain topics. So we've had this one before us planned for a little while. And uh, the title of the sermon is, And They Shall Prophesy, from Acts 2, 17 and 18. Uh, also, as we're thinking about this and we learn today, we, we, we've put another sermon on the homepage for you that will sort of bolster our understanding and prophetic things. And in the gift of prophecy, the sermon is entitled The Gift of Prophecy, taught it a few years ago when I was at Reality uh, Santa Barbara. So that's available to you. It'll help with this sermon sort of us grow in these things and our biblical understanding of them. Uh, the one that's online is like a real sort of nitty gritty how to sort of teaching on the gift of prophecy. Like how do we receive prophetic words from the Lord? What should we do when we think that's happening? Uh, what should we do if we think we're supposed to give a prophetic word to someone? What do we do when someone says, I have a prophetic word for you and they give it to us? How do we communicate that? How do we receive that? How do we navigate through that as a community? That's all online for you. And that sermon has a whole bunch of personal examples from the life of our church and my personal life of how these things work out. So please go online, get that this week. That will connect you to a bunch of other teachings on the person and work of the Holy Spirit as well. But the text before us are verses 17 and 18, again, of Acts chapter 2. You'll remember that Pentecost is happening, the Spirit has fallen upon the church, and they're speaking in these other tongues. And some people are saying, what is this? It seems like everybody's drunk. Other people are saying, what is the meaning of this? And Peter stands up to answer, and he says, this is that. This is what Joel spoke of, the Old Testament prophet. This is that. And so we're going to see what he says in response and uh, talk about the details. Verse 17 Peter speaking says, quoting from the book of Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, as we come under the authority of your word this morning, we ask that you would give us faith to believe your word, to receive your word, and to obey your word. We ask that our thoughts, our hearts, and ultimately our lives would be formed by the truth of your word, by what you teach us and what you reveal to us in the Bible. We're thankful for it. Give us ears to hear. We pray together, please, God, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to be a faithful and effective teacher and preacher this morning for the glory of Jesus and for the good of us and those whom we love. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're still here exploring the effects of Pentecost. Jesus had promised that if his disciples would wait in Jerusalem, they would receive power from on high. And so in response and obedience, they waited and they prayed it, prayed it. They waited and they prayed it. Sounds awesome. Waited and prayed it. And then on this day we call Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell 
upon them. And there was something like wind in the room and there was something like fire over their heads and they all began to speak in tongues and they were receiving power as Jesus promised they would that they might be witnesses. And there were a lot of effects that happened then with those original 120 gathered and subsequently in the church and throughout the world in light of the day of Pentecost. We've talked about the grand effects of Pentecost, namely that the church became vividly aware of the presence of God and that there was a boldness that came upon them to speak the truth about Jesus and that there was in the community that was around them a new deep conviction about sin. And so there came a great harvest. That is people repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus according to who he is and what he did for them on the cross. And those were kind of the grand effects of Pentecost as we've been seeing. And as we've been praying together as a church and learning to pray together, we're asking God for another Pentecost. Just that God would make us more aware of his presence in the midst of the church and the effects that that would have, right? And that we'd have this fresh boldness to talk about Jesus wherever we find ourselves in this community and in this world and that our community would experience a deep conviction about sin and so repent of their sins and be forgiven and there'd be a great harvest of souls for the glory of Jesus and for the good of those whom we love. And then last week when Dave Lomas was here, he mentioned that and then he kind of drilled down and talked about some of the granular or ground level effects. What does it look like in the life of a person on Tuesday morning that's receiving power from the Holy Spirit? And he talked about from uh, the example of Peter that there comes into our lives a Christ-like mellow boldness. He had some great examples of how that happened with and in Peter, excuse me. Talked about the fact, I think this is a good one, that joy is manifest in the fact that we don't take ourselves too seriously. Jesus gets bigger, we get smaller. And so we're not so easily offended and self-absorbed. And there's a joy that comes from that surrender. And then finally, he said, we start seeing the Bible come true around us. That's exactly what was happening right here in our text. And he gave us that great paradigm to think about, this is that. That's what Peter is doing. He's saying, this is that which Joel, the Old Testament prophet, spoke about. He gave examples from our church and the way we've planted churches around the world. This is that, like David and Goliath and these big things before us and in our own lives. I think we're beginning to see this is that. There's stories percolating in our churches, people getting saved, people getting filled with like the joy of the spirit, transformation, holiness happening. This is that. And that's what's going on in our text today. And this is that has to do with some specific things that are mentioned here. Specific effects of Pentecost that Peter mentions in quoting Joel are that we would, as a result of being filled with the Spirit, experience visions, dreams, and prophesying. Visions, dreams, and prophesying. That is God speaking to us and through us. Now, as we'll see in a moment in the book of Acts, that's the story of the church. Those were very real effects of the Spirit coming upon the church is that they begin to move in this prophetic realm. God speaking to them and through them, through dreams, visions, and prophesying. That's the story of the church. That's the story of this church. That's the story of Reality San Francisco. You remember last week when Dave Lomas, pastor of Reality San Francisco, was here. Do you know how he even wound up here? One Sunday, about a decade ago, 
uh, I was standing over here playing electric guitar in the band, and I saw Dave and his wife, Ashley Lomas, sitting right in the front row, right, right where George and Sharon are, right here, sitting in the front row. Now, he says I had met them before, but I don't, I don't remember them. I don't remember meeting them, but as I'm standing there playing guitar, I saw them, and it was like I had a vision. I saw them in a different way. And I felt the Lord say to me, you, reality, are to plant a church with them. It was an undeniable impression and like a vision in the way that I saw them. It was like the Lord was just spotlighting them. And I just knew that I knew. And I went up to them and I said, hey, what are you doing here? And the backside of the story I didn't know is that Dave and Ashley had been praying about. They lived in Bakersfield. God have mercy. They had been praying about... Someday starting a church somewhere and relocating and they had heard that Reality Carpenteria planted other churches. So they had said, let's go there, maybe talk to Britt and someone else and see what we could do. But then Dave got cold feet and didn't want to come. His wife made him come anyway. And that morning they saw another preacher get up, one of our church planters, Josh Kaler from Reality Stockton. And Dave was like, oh good, Britt's not here. I don't have to deal with that whole thing. But I was hiding over here playing electric guitar and God was telling me and I went to them after the, after the service and this is like a Holy Spirit moment, I call it. It doesn't happen very often. I just walked up and said, what are you doing here? And Dave literally started to stutter. Just, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Forget about it. What, what do you want to do with your life? Who says that? And Dave goes, well, I, we're ta- maybe, ta- and I just said, do you want to come plant a church with us? We would love to plant a church with you. Now listen, Either we were being led by the Holy Spirit or we're insane because I didn't know them from anybody. I didn't know them. It was this Holy Spirit moment where there was a vision and there was a prophetic word. And so they sold their house in Bakersfield and they moved here and got together with us and the rest is history. But then one night we're having a prayer meeting here and Dave Lomas is over in the back by where Will is sitting, right there, and he got down on his face, and the Lord gave him a prophetic word that he was calling him to San Francisco. At the same time, I was up here on the carpets praying, and the Lord had told me that they were called to San Francisco. We hadn't yet determined a spot. And so I went walking over to Dave, and he comes walking to me. I was like, has the Lord told you anything? He said, yeah, we're called to San Francisco. I said, I know God told me the same thing. And then shortly after that, a woman from the church came to us and said, I got to tell you this dream I had. And she had a dream of a reality church in San Francisco with the glory of Jesus and the light of the word of God shining out from it into the city. You see, that was, yeah, praise God for that. That was the church. That's the story of this church. And the churches that we plant, like that was visions, prophetic words, and dreams happening right in our midst. This is that that Peter's speaking about here. Now, when he starts to quote the passage from Joel, he starts in verse 17 by saying, in the last days, right? He uses that phrase, in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit. In the last days is a phrase that refers to the period between Pentecost, the text that we're looking at, and the Lord's return. That's the last days because Peter says this is happening now. So the last days is this period of time between Pentecost and the return of the Lord. 
And there's sort of some bookends here in the text. The front end is, on the beginning of the last days, God would pour out his spirit and his people would move in prophetic ways. The back end of that bookend is the return of the Lord. And there's some signs that accompany that. And we just look at those briefly in 19 and 20. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Pause right there. The great and glorious day of the Lord means the return of the Lord. So in the last days from Pentecost, this day in the text, until the Lord returns, there would be these things happening. It would start off with the pouring out of the Spirit that God's people begin to move in prophetic ways. And it would end with these signs that were undeniable in creation and the Lord would return. We've studied that before, book of Revelation, so on and so forth. But the salient point of it all is verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the key quality of the last days is that Jesus is saving people. That's why we prayed for people that we know and we love this morning by name because Jesus is mighty to save. He's willing to save. He's able to save. In the last days, both in the signs that will come and in the pouring out of the spirit and prophetic ministry, God is doing it in order to save people. We live in the age of harvest. Remember, Pentecost was that Jewish feast spoken of in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 that marked the beginning of the summer harvest season for Israel. And the Spirit was poured out on that day, telling us we live in the summer harvest. We live in the time that Jesus spoke of where he said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And when he pours out his Spirit on the church, he's sending workers into the harvest. What's significant about our text in the day of Pentecost is the scope of it all. He says here that he would pour out his spirit upon all of his bond slaves, men and women, young and old, sons and daughters. And that he would begin to work through his people by his spirit. Now, that's not new, God working through his people by his spirit. We see that throughout scripture. It's the scope of it, all of God's people which is new here in our text. It worked a little differently in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we would see God's spirit come upon people, but it would be certain people for a certain work or a certain time, and then the spirit might even be removed. Old Testament prophets, others, we just see the spirit come upon them for a certain time and a certain work. In the New Testament, after the day of Pentecost, we see the promise of the spirit coming upon all of God's people for all time to accomplish all of God's work. And there are many ways in which God's work is accomplished. But one of the distinct ways that God's work is to be accomplished is through prophetic means. And God's work is always to be accomplished in the power of the Spirit. Right? Jesus said, don't do anything until power has come upon you. Part of God's power coming upon us, His Spirit coming upon us, is that we will prophesy. Now, what exactly is happening when we prophesy or we receive prophetic words or dreams or visions? What exactly is happening? We'll say this. God is speaking by mysterious means to us that he might accomplish his glorious purposes through us. That's what's happening in prophetic words, 
prophesying, dreams, vision. God is speaking by mysterious means to us that he might accomplish his glorious purposes through us. Now, let's do a little bit of background work for that. There is a huge assumption that we are making when we talk about this. It's a biblical assumption. I think it's a right assumption, but we're making a huge assumption when we talk about this. The assumption that we're making is this, that God speaks to his people. That's the assumption that we're making, that God speaks to his people. It's a biblical assumption. I think it's the right assumption, but we need to all agree that we're talking about that here. And God insists upon the fact that he speaks to his people. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, when God is trying to set himself apart from the false gods that the people went after, he says about the false gods, they don't hear you and they don't speak to you. They can't do anything for you. I am the living God who speaks to you. The one true God of the Bible, the God of Israel, sets himself apart by the fact that he is the living God who speaks to us. In the garden, God spoke. In the burning bush, God was speaking. On the mountain, when Moses went up there, God spoke. In the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, God was speaking to his people. Through his prophets, God spoke to his people. In the still small voice, God was speaking. Through his son, Jesus, God has spoken to us. Through his holy word, the Bible, God has spoken and continues to speak to us. And through prophetic means, dreams, visions, and prophetic words, God still speaks to us. Now, an important point of distinction when we say that. Jesus, the Son of God, and the Bible, the Word of God, are final and authoritative as it pertains to God speaking to us. They are a full, final, complete, sufficient revelation from God. They are without error and binding for all time and for all people. Christ, the Son of God, and the Bible, the Word of God. And yet, God still speaks to us by his spirit today, prophetically. Jesus said this would be the case when he promised the spirit coming. He said in John, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. See, this is communicative language. He will tell you even about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So God has spoken throughout history in all those ways. God has spoken to us with full and final authority in his Son and in his Word. But God, because he loves us and we are his sons and daughters, continues to speak to us by his Spirit. Now, There are many within the pale of Orthodox Christianity that would say that isn't so. They would say that with the closing of the canon of Scripture, God has ceased to speak to us by prophetic means, dreams, visions, words, so on and so forth. And I just don't think that there is any biblical basis to make that assertion. That would be a strange picture of the God of the Bible indeed. 
For from the garden to the return, God speaks to his people. In different ways, in various ways, multitudinously, ultimately through his son, full and final authority in his word. And yet God, because he loves them and he's a heavenly father and he cares about them, God always speaks to his people. It would be a strange new God of the Bible if he ever stopped speaking to his people, even in this prophetic way. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit came, that's what he would do. And God speaks to us this way because he loves us. And I think that the true reason that some people reject prophetic means as a way that God speaks to us is not because of anything that's found in Scripture. It's, it's not. It's because they, like most of us, have been negatively affected by ways in which prophetic stuff was done wrong. By ways that people messed up. Ways in which people were weird. False examples. And that's a common experience for all of us, you know. My wife and I were given some so-called prophetic words when our daughter was sick with cancer that were just wrong. People just wrong. Said things that weren't from God. And that caused real hurt. Confusion, difficulty, fear, disappointment in us. But here's what we know, brothers and sisters. We do not form what we believe out of our confusion, our fear, our pain, our wounds, and our disappointment, or the messes of people. We form what we believe from the inerrant, authoritative word of God. We have all been hurt by people in the church who mess things up. But we don't form doctrine from those wounds. What in the church have we not messed up? (laughs) We've messed it all up. From beginning to end, we are messy people that make a mess of the good stuff that God is doing and yet God prevails and God accomplishes his purposes despite us, not because of us. And he's faithful to work even in the midst of our mess. And so what we don't do because we've all had bad examples is we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have a greater respect for the word of God than that. Greater faith than that. Paul would write perhaps to people like us when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica and say, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Don't be naive. Weigh it out and measure what someone's claiming is from God. Absolutely examine everything carefully against the written word of God. But don't quench the spirit by despising prophetic utterances because you've had bad examples of it. We have great examples in scripture. He would go on to write to the church in Corinth who he wrote to them in part because they were getting messy with the things of the spirit and needed some direction. And he said to them, listen, let love be your highest goal. But you should also desire the special abilities the spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. So my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. That's another sermon. But right now, Paul says you should actually be eager for God to speak to you and through you. 
Don't despise it. If you do that, you'll grieve the Spirit. Go ahead and examine it. The Spirit would have us do that. Let it be about love and not prophetic things, but you should actually pursue these things because they are part of the Father's good gifts to us. And so we, as God's people then, we have to humbly recognize that anytime we are involved, things are going to get messy. We will err and we will falter. But the church belongs to Jesus. And he is faithful and will prevail in his purposes. And when did God ever use non-messy people anyway? God never ever, no, not once, not a single time used someone who wasn't a messy person. Go all the way back to Noah if you want to. Noah did really, really bad things when he drank too much. Abraham made really bad choices about his wife and another woman. Jacob was an outright liar. Joseph came from an abusive family. Moses wasn't able to speak well and acted out in the flesh. Gideon was fearful. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. King David had an extramarital affair with a woman and then murdered her husband. The prophet Jeremiah struggled with depression. The prophet Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God's direct command to him and didn't care much about the plight of people who were perishing. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman had a series of broken relationships. The disciples fell asleep when Jesus asked them to stay up and pray. Peter outright denied Jesus on the eve of the cross. Paul was a persecutor of the church. You get the picture. And yet the testimony of scripture and history is that God's purposes still prevail because Jesus is in control. And he's the head of the church. Amen. Now, New Testament prophecy, dreams, visions, prophetic words, leading, work the same way. God speaking to and through, messy and perfect, although saved and loved sons and daughters of his. And a faithful biblical community will pursue those things as the word of God says and create within itself a context of graciousness and mercy as we live through the mess. And that's what we want to do. Now, here's an important distinction that will allow us to move forward with grace and mercy in the midst of the mess. This is very important. The New Testament function of prophecy is different from the Old Testament office of prophet, okay? Old Testament prophets spoke the very words of God. And as such, they had absolute authority in what they said. To disobey an Old Testament prophet was to disobey God. The authority rested with them at that time in history. Their words became scripture. Therefore, because they were speaking the very words of God with absolute authority from God that would become scripture, therefore, they had tremendous responsibility. If they got it wrong, it cost them their lives. The Old Testament tells us if someone claims to speak from God and they are wrong, they die. 
the New Testament function of prophecy is not the same. We now have the completed Bible, the Word of God. And it holds absolute authority for what God speaks. To disobey Scripture is to disobey God. The authority rests with the Word of God. Since then, we have completed Scripture. The New Testament function of prophecy is not the reporting of the very words of God. Rather, it is reporting in merely human words something that God has brought to mind through mysterious means. So a purported word of God, someone says, I have a word of God with you or I, for you, or I had a dream or I, I had a vision, should never even for a moment in any way be esteemed or held in the same way as the capital T, word capital W of God. We're not talking about the same thing. Quite honestly, what may happen as we try to walk in the prophetic is God's people in this age, dreams, visions, prophetic words, and leadings. As we try to discern what God is saying to us, we may make mistakes and say wrong things in the reporting of it. God doesn't make a mistake. He's trying to say something right and clear to us. He's God. He's without error. But in our receiving it and reporting it, we might have error. And that's where it gets missing. Now, that, that sounds sketchy there, but let me give you a clear example from Scripture. Look at this passage from Acts 21. What's going on here in Acts 21 is that Paul is on the way back to Jerusalem. He's on one of his missionary journeys. He's got his boys with him, Paul, Timothy, and Silas. He wanted to be back in Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, so he's like, it's hauling butt there. He wants to get there. He already stopped off in Miletus to meet with the uh, elders from the church of Ephesus. And now the ship pulls over in what is modern day Syria near Tyre. The, ch- the, the ship pulls over there. And then we read this. We, Paul, Luke, Timothy, Silas, Luke is writing. We went ashore, found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. Okay, got that? The word of God says they prophesied by revelation from the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Agabus is a little dramatic. And then he said, the Holy Spirit declares... So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. It continues. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You guys are breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of our Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, what's going on here? Paul received a prophecy, it says, prophetic word, that if he went to Jerusalem, he would experience persecution. Agabus gave him to him straight in a living parable, bound his own hands and feet and said, this is what will happen to you. And Paul, hearing that, 
responded in a different way than the others that heard it. Those others that were hearing it, they said, well, then Paul, don't go. Paul responded by saying, no, I'm going to go. And he went anyway. Everyone resolves at the end, the Lord's will be done. So what was Paul doing when he received the supposed prophetic word? Paul was doing what we should always do. He was examining it carefully like we read in Thessalonians. He was judging, evaluating the supposed prophetic word, right? We read in 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. So if in the New Testament uh, exercising a prophecy, we share something, we need to be ready for it to be evaluated. That's what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to happen in community. We say something like, I think the Lord is saying, and then others, okay, does this bear witness from the Spirit? Does this seem right by what the Spirit is doing in me and speaking to me? Does this seem right according to the Word of God, the ultimate litmus test and authority? And Paul waited out And he decided that the content of the prophecy was right. That would happen to him. There would be persecution. But their application or their response or their interpretation of what to do was wrong. They said, therefore, don't go. Those urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem had received real revelation of the persecution awaiting him and correct and were reporting that but wrong in their interpretation, application, implications, consequences, that he should not go. They should have only reported that there would be trouble and not then added their own, well, then you shouldn't go. Now, that's hard to do, you know. And this is the way that New Testament prophetic revelation works. God speaks to us something clear And then we, not being Old Testament prophets, God not working in the same way, we then add to it then how we feel about it or what we think you ought to do in light of it or what it means. I'm not saying that it was all insidious. I'm saying this is the way that it works. God is infallible. Whatever he was saying was correct and without error, but we are fallible and we make and have an error in these things. And so they should have just said, hey, Paul, the Lord is just saying that when you go there, dude, it's going to be tough instead of begging him not to go. And then they all yield, the Lord's will be done. So because of the nature of the way that New Testament prophetic leading works, it requires that we receive something and communicate something, and in that it can simply be messy. Hard to separate our own thoughts or additions or opinions about it. Therefore, I think a community should, when communicating prophetic things, avoid phrases like, thus saith the Lord. That's like an Old Testament prophet thing. Agabus kind of gets to that a little bit, but we, I think, should be humble enough not to say such a thing. Rather, we should have humble phrases like, I think maybe the Lord is saying, I feel that perhaps, you test it, you evaluate it, let's examine it together as a community, that the Lord is leading this way. I sense that perhaps the Spirit is communicating Those are the ways that we ought to put it out there. And then humbly we say, but let's together discern as a community. That's exactly what God intends. That's exactly what the New Testament says we ought to do in light of these things. So it may get messy. And we will make mistakes. 
But we want to be a community that pursues these things because it's Bible and has a gracious, merciful environment in which we can learn together. And the clear testimony of Scripture is that after the day of Pentecost, the church moved forward with prophetic leading, prophesying dreams and visions. It's almost in every single chapter of the book of Acts. A few examples, when we get to Acts chapter 5, you remember Ananias and Sapphira, right? Everyone in the church was like the trendy thing to do to like sell all your stuff and bring it to the church and say, here's all my money, give it to people that need. And so they wanted to be a part of that awesome trend. And so they sold some stuff and they brought the money and they're like, this is all the money, but it was only a portion of it. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Peter had received some prophetic revelation, knowledge that he did not previously know, understanding that he could not otherwise have had, that there was something amiss here. And he spoke that. He had a prophetic word. And what that served to do in the early church was preserve the church in purity and integrity at a crucial time. God speaking to and through his people for a great purpose there. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being martyred. He's the first martyred in the church. They are watching this guy that they knew and had appointed and laid hands on and loved. They're watching him be stoned to death. And he has a prophetic vision. He sees Jesus in glory and enthroned. And he communicates that vision. And it brings tremendous hope to him and the church as they suffer. Acts chapter 8, Philip is told by the Spirit to hop up on this moving chariot and share the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch who is leaving Jerusalem very disappointed in the worship structures that he found at the temple. And so he obeys the Spirit. He gets up there to preach the gospel. The guy's like, oh my gosh. And he gets saved and he gets baptized and the gospel goes to a new place. Acts chapter 9, Ananias, a different Ananias, is told by the Spirit that this guy, Saul, who used to persecute the church, just got knocked off his horse, and he's now blind from Jesus. And Ananias is to go pray for him, that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the Apostle Paul is commissioned. So prophetic instruction given him. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's on the roof praying and all of a sudden he has this vision about the sheet coming down and then there's a knock at the door and the spirit says to him, go answer the door and go with these men. And he goes to this guy Cornelius' house and he preached the gospel and his whole family gets saved and the gospel goes to the Gentiles like never before because of prophetic vision and leading. In Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch is gathered together ministering to the Lord, praying, worshiping, waiting on God and they all together hear the Spirit say, separate out for me Paul and Barnabas for the purposes to which I've called them. And so they lay hands on them and send them out in the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on these awesome missionary journeys through a prophetic word given to the whole church. Acts chapter 15, we have the first gnarly drama in the church. The church in Jerusalem is trying to figure out how to deal with these Gentiles that are getting saved in light of the Mosaic law. What should they require of Gentile followers of Jesus in light of God's law? And in their summation statement, they say, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. They were receiving leading from the Holy Spirit. And so we're able to solve that problem and communicate effectively. In Acts chapter 16... Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 16. I want us to see this one. Turn to Acts chapter 16. There's profound language here. You guys with me? All is well? Okay. Ooh, sweating. 
Okay, look at this in Acts chapter 16. Starting in verse 6. It says, and they, this is Paul and Luke and Timothy and Titus and Silas or whoever's there, I don't know. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been, look at this phrase, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus, another name for the Holy Spirit, did not permit them. And so passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Look at God leading and directing his people by his spirit to accomplish his purposes in unexpected, profound ways. Like it says that the Holy Spirit forbid them to go into that region. They're trying to like go to the certain region to take the gospel there and the Holy Spirit forbids them. So then they're like, oh man, we can't do that. So they go this other way and it says the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Like, wow, we're like, they're on a mission trip, dude. So they're just trying to like do the thing and the spirit keeps stopping them. And so I would assume by now God's got their attention. Perhaps they're praying. I don't know the context it doesn't say, but I would assume something like that because now Paul has this vision of some dude in Macedonia saying, hey, Paul, come here and help us. And he shares the vision with those who are with him. And then it says, and so we concluded that this is what God was calling us to do. Notice that there was prophetic words, stop. There's prophetic leading, not leading, however you want to say it. And then there was a prophetic vision and there was a community coming together to discern we and say, this is what God is calling us to do. That is profound. That is God's spirit leading God's people to accomplish God's purposes. We see it happening in the book of Acts with individuals, groups, and whole churches. And because that is a testimony of the book of Acts, after Pentecost, that, I assume, is what is to be normative for God's church. That God's spirit leads God's people in accomplishing God's purposes. That's to be the way that the church lives. To deny that that's the Christian experience is to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. It's both prescriptive, Joel said this is that, and it's descriptive. It happens over and over again. Romans 8.14 tells us, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. God loves you. And like every cheesy evangelical Bible teacher has ever said, he has a plan for your life. But it's true and it's beautiful. God loves you and he has a plan for your life that intersects and is consumed by his purposes. And he wants to lead us by his spirit, for his glory and for our good. Not outside of the bounds of scripture, within the purposes of scripture and consonant with what scripture says. God has always spoken to those whom he loves and God loves you. He wants to speak to you and lead you for his purposes. 
We've been reading about that in Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. That's very much a testimony of how that played out in that church. I just shared with you about Dave Lamas and how this has played out in our church. This week, I was going through some notes, some old notes of mine preparing for the sermon. And I came across an old prophecy that had been given to Kate and I about um, 15 years ago. My, Isaiah, my son, who's sitting right there in the fourth row, was about two years old at the time, three years old. And our daughter, Daisy, had just been born. And we were kind of wondering, like, how should we live now? Um, should Kate go to work? Should, should she be involved in the ministry, hands-on with me, working alongside me here? Or should she commit herself to being at home? And a sort of mother of this church, a key intercessor, a prophetic woman in the church, gave us a word, and it said this. Kate, I believe that the Lord is saying that you are not to get busy with other things, but you're to stay home and pour into your children. Because something will happen in Isaiah's life when he's about nine years old and he will need everything you've invested in him. When my son was nine years old, his little sister was diagnosed with cancer. She suffered, but that dude suffered. His parents lived in and out of the hospital for four years. He was here and there and everywhere else. The attention of the whole world, it seemed, was on Daisy. This dude suffered. He needed every moment of those nine years that his mom had poured into them. That was God because he loves us, because he loves my son Isaiah, because he cared about us, communicating to us prophetically through another person, something that formed and shaped the entire direction of our life that is paying dividends now. I am so proud of the young man that my son is. I am so impressed with who God is in him and through him and the work that God has done and is doing. And I believe that that prophetic word saved our family in the experience that we would go through. Why wouldn't God do that? He loves us. He loves you. He's your heavenly father, infinitely and intimately concerned with all your comings and goings. The good news in God's love is that we see in scripture that the Holy Spirit clearly speaks to and leads and very specifically Jesus's followers. The tough news is that we're not always told exactly how it happens. Like with that Acts 16 experience, we aren't told, was this like an audible thing? Right, the Holy Spirit forbid them. The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Was this like an audible, like they heard the voice? Was this thoughts, impressions, feelings? Was it like they tried to go toward Asia and there was like a sign that said, do not enter, Holy Spirit? How did it work out? We're not exactly told how it worked out. We're just told that the Spirit was speaking, right? In Acts 8, the Spirit said to Philip. In Acts 10, the Spirit said to him. Acts 11, the Spirit told me. Acts 13, the Holy Spirit said. Acts 16, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. A vision is given. God has called us. Acts 20, they were bound. Paul was bound in the Spirit. And the Spirit solemnly testified to him. And we just aren't told... This nitty-gritty detail, was it audible? Were these thoughts? Were these impressions? Some sensation? And I would just confess that we don't always understand how it happens and can't necessarily control when it would happen. But we must believe, because the Bible says so, that it does happen. 
that God speaks to us. And I think it's all of those things. And I believe that God is more willing to speak to us and lead us than we are willing to be spoken to and led. So I would say to us that in light of the scriptures, we just have to be a community that obeys the Bible in this. Pursues this, because the Bible says it's good and it's for us. Creates an environment that is gracious and merciful as we try to grow in this. And we get messy because we're messy people. And as we individually try to obey the Bible in this, then we need to go on the journey of discovering what it's like when God speaks to you as an individual. That's part of the journey. That's part of it. That's part of being a Christ follower. How does the spirit of Jesus speak to you? And it might be in different ways at different times. I think it's more of an art than a science. And as I said at the beginning, it's a bit mysterious. And we're not given all the details. But I will give you some pointers. Here is where you start. Number one. Create spaces and practices that open you up to God. Spaces and practices that open you up to God. I am talking predominantly, primarily about reading the Bible and praying. I'm talking about the Bible and prayer. I'm talking about creating rhythmic times, places, and space within your life to seek the Lord by reading and studying his word, meditating upon it, and praying through it. That's what I'm talking about. Create spaces and places where you're open to God by his word and by prayer. Those means that God has given us. And then the other side of that coin, sorry about the microphone, is I would say eliminate distractions that close you off from God. I'm talking primarily about entertainment, technology, and busyness. The great enemy of creating spaces and places where we're open to God are technology, entertainment, and busyness. Because there's always something we got to do. There's always some place we got to be. Who has time? There's always something to look at and click on and check out. And there's always something to numb out to. But if we fill our lives with the busyness available to us, the technology at our fingertips and the entertainment that we could have at any moment, then when and where and how do we make the space for God to speak to us? I'm saying that we as a people of God should be a disciplined people who make space in our lives to seek God and to hear from God because he wants to speak to us. And the third point suggestion I would give is give heed to what you know God is already saying to you. Sometimes people are like, God, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. And God's like, I already spoke to you, spoke to you, spoke to you. And you haven't done anything about it. So I think if we're putting ourselves in a posture of saying, gosh, I need to hear from the Lord, then we need to give careful attention to what the Lord has already revealed to us, perhaps in scripture or conviction of sin or some other way, and then obey the Lord in those things. Andrew Murray in one of his books says it this way, let each one who would be led by the spirit begin by giving his or herself to be led of the word of God as far as they know it. Begin at the beginning. Obey the commandments. 
So when we're asking God to speak to us mysteriously about things we could not possibly know or understanding that we couldn't have, we should first give attention to what God has spoken to us clearly and obey those things. And then finally, I would say, we need to determine to engage in God's purposes around us. You know, maybe... I don't know, maybe sometimes we have difficulty hearing from God because our main concern is our purposes as opposed to God's purposes. And I think God cares about our purposes. I think he's infinitely and intimately concerned with all of our comings and goings. His thoughts toward us outnumber all the sand on all the beaches in the world, the Bible says. But that's for God to be infinitely concerned with us in our lives, not for us. We are to at least be concerned about God's and his, God and his purposes. And that's what we see the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church for. That's why we see people moving the prophetic for. It's not about, oh, should I work at Procore? Or should I date this chick? Or should I? I believe that God cares about those things. But those are not ultimate things. One time when I was thinking about marrying Kate, and I was an idiot that I even had to think about it, sweetheart. I don't even know why I had to think about it. But I was thinking about it. I asked my dad for advice. I said, Dad, this girl, Kate, you know her. She's awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. How, I, don't know. I don't know if I should marry her or not. What should I do? How will I know? How do, how do I know? And he gave me an answer that I hated at the time. He said, son, one morning you'll just wake up and you'll know. God will make it clear. That's all he said. I was like, that's the worst answer ever. I want like some, you know, that's the worst answer ever. But lo and behold, a few months later, I woke up one morning and I just knew. God had made it as clear to me as anything ever in my life that I wanted to marry that woman. I didn't talk to nobody. I went down to Ventura to George Thompson's because I got a friend in the diamond business. I went to George Thompson's. I bought myself a diamond, or I bought her a diamond ring. It was only a quarter carat. I put it on my credit card. I didn't have money to pay for it. When we got married, she paid off the credit card with her bank account. <laughs> Went to George Thompson's, got my tiny quarter carat, and then invited her down to Rincon and got on my knees at the top of the point at Rincon and asked her to marry me. God had never made anything more wonderfully clear in my life, and I'm so thankful for it. He cares about that stuff but he is mostly concerned with his glory and his purposes in the world of saving men, women, and children. I think that we hear from the Spirit when we endeavor to live for the glory of God. And then, you know, it's a process of learning to discern what it seems like what it, or what it sounds and feels like when the Spirit speaks to you. So sometimes you might, I think the Spirit's leading me to do this, and you step out, you're like, oh, no, dude, that wasn't it. Well, you learn something there. You're like, okay, that's not the Spirit. And then another time, you're like, I think the Spirit is leading you. Step out and you're like, yes, that's it. Well, you learn something there. You're learning to discern the voice of the Lord. I would say that when you're doing that, make sure that you are saturated in Bible. Saturated in the Word of God. That's the vocabulary of God. Saturate yourself in the Word of God and you give God and yourself some great conversation starters. Be saturated in the word of God. That's how you'll know the voice of God. This is God's word and everything will be weighed against it. I would also say if you're learning and discerning and doing that, find a mentor. 
There's a lot of awesome men and women in our church who move in the prophetic realm, know what it is to be led by the Spirit. Kate and I have always had mentors in that. Find a mentor in the church. Here's a little hint. They're at the prayer meetings. Come to the prayer meeting. Meet one of them and be like, hey, lady, will you mentor me? I want to learn to hear from Jesus. It's an awesome way to disciple people. Find a mentor. And then be submitted to community. Don't do it in a vacuum. That's not the way it's meant to be. You know, you're like, I think the Lord is saying, and we evaluate and we discover together as a community. But primarily, I think we hear again from the Lord when we are concerned for his glory in our lives. But in every area of your life, the Father loves you and he wants to lead you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And you can trust the Father. You can trust the Father. He has good things for you. You can trust him in his spirit and speaking to us. So I want you guys this week to think of a specific way you want God to speak to you. Just ask him to do it. Ask him to do it today. God, speak to me in this area. Speak to me, Lord. You should also think about in our time of reflection and worship and and sort of prayerful songs, like is there any way that God is already speaking to you that you haven't heeded or given attention to? Maybe you should repent and give attention to that if you're expecting God to speak to you. Bring your fears before him. Bring your great needs before him this morning. And determine in your life to step out into God's purposes because his plan for your life is better than your own. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word. We would ask now that Holy Spirit, you would come and speak to the beloved sons and daughters of God and that you would lead us in the ways that we ought to go for the glory of Jesus and for our own good. Come Holy Spirit.